Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 77th episode of the Nice Work Podcast. Glad you're listening. Glad you're here. Thanks for sharing us far and wide. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant. Today, we're going to talk to, uh, seriously, one of the humans who has done more to make the world nicer, especially for women in resource-scarce nations than nearly any other. And I say that without exaggeration or hyperbole. Uh, that human is none other than the super nice all-star Bill Ryerson, founder of Population Media Center. Bill founded PMC with the goal of achieving a sustainable population by enhancing human rights. Right? Uh, PMC is a nonprofit leader in entertainment education that has helped 500 million people live healthier lives in more than 50 countries. 500 million people that he's helped. How? How does he do this? You're just going to have to listen in and learn, especially you, Mackenzie Scott. Mackenzie Scott, I know you're out there because this is really something that you and your team can plug into to promote rapid, massive gains in all corners of the globe. So hey, listeners, if you know Mackenzie or someone who might, please share this podcast with her. I'm very serious. Uh, and if you don't know who Mackenzie Scott is, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know who that is, right? The, the Starman guy. He used to be lucky enough to be married to her. Or, you know, maybe she used to be unlucky enough to be married to him. Super Nice Club is totally taking sides on this divorce. I don't know if that's nice or not, but we totally are. And now Mackenzie is out doing good as a leading philanthropist. And she's also a hell of a writer. I don't know if you knew that about her. Anyway, Bill is a terrific guest. He's one that you're going to love. His passion, his passion for his projects has burned like a, something like something really hot, like a, a, what, a white hot torch, right? For decades now. And I, I think it's really important to find people who are undimmable because the world has a way of, of quenching so many important flames. And, and to learn from them how to, how to stay bright, right? Here's a quote from Bill that kind of illustrates his passion. As I continue to travel around the world, I am still constantly surprised at the treatment of women, the degradation of women, violence against women, taboos about women's menstruation and menopause, accusing women of being witches and inflicting punishment and even death. The maltreatment of women happens domestically and abroad. It's shocking that women are treated this way in the 21st century. Violence against women in its various forms is the most pervasive public health and human rights issue. Go get them, Bill. Anyway, listen in now for how Bill and his team are using a super powerful, super scalable, very replicable technique to change human behavior for the betterment of all of us. Um, this is episode 77. I want to do the little part where I read from the uh, page of whatever book I'm currently reading. It's always kind of a non sequitur from everything else, but whatever, my podcast. Uh, the book I'm reading right now is Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, Prong Dance, Horned Humans, Mice on Toast, and Other Wonders of Jurassic Technology. If you live around LA and you haven't seen, gone to, visited, heard of the Museum of Jurassic Technology, you're missing my very favorite part of LA. Seriously, very favorite part of LA. It's incredible. Love to get 
Mr. Wilson on the podcast someday. All right, page 77. Let's pick the second paragraph. Yeah, here we go. By the late 16th and early 17th centuries, this sort of horde, the Chamber of Wonders, in which the word wonder referred both to the objects displayed and the subjective state those objects inevitably induced in their respective viewers, was rampant all over Europe. And the question arises, why? Or rather, why then? To say that such wonder was an essential aspect of early Renaissance experience merely begs the question, what was it about the early Renaissance that provoked such an avalanche of wonder? And of course the answer, as Plater's awestruck inventory of Cope's treasure trove itself suggests, lies in the avalanche of marvelous new stuff that had suddenly began, begun pouring over the transom into a previous, previous? It's not a word. Mm -mm. Previously parochial, hidebound, closed-in European subcontinent. In particular, the stuff of the new world. Ah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, you're not into the history of museums and stuff, but... I, I think it's cool. Part of a super nice world or super nice museums. Okay, let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with super nice William Bill Ryerson. Bill, Bill Ryerson, great to have you on. Nice work. Good morning. Good morning to you. Great to be on. I always ask right away just to give listeners a sense of geography. Where are you right now? I'm in northern Vermont in the small town of Shelburne outside of Burlington, Vermont. So the northwest coast of Vermont. Vermont is one of those states, at least here in California, that is sort of uh, this idyllic dream state that many of us don't visit. But it's like, oh, Vermont, that's where everything is beautiful and amazing. Truth or exaggeration? Truth. It's beautiful state, the most rural state in the U.S., an hour's flight from New York. It has the lowest COVID infection rates per capita in the country and the highest vaccination rate per capita. It's the only state that still has direct democracy, uh, where people in towns come together and vote on the town budget and other policy issues, uh, captured in a Norman Rockwell uh, painting uh, that was part of the Four Freedoms. And Vermont has the most spectacular fall foliage, which, by the way, happens in late September, not October, when people come and see the trees have shed their leaves. So at any rate, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful state. And winter is our friend because the, the weather here does get cold and we get one or two feet of snow on the ground and people are afraid of that. So it keeps Vermont open <laughs> and very rural. That does sound pretty perfect. Do you ever? Do you guys ever think, you know, maybe we should just break off and be our own country? Has that ever come up? Uh, Vermont was an independent country from the end of the Revolutionary War to joining the Union as the 14th state. So it was not one of the original 13. And the Vermont Republic movement is alive and well. In fact, Ethan Allen rode his horse into the state capitol building during the Bush administration, the George Bush administration to George W., uh, to demand that Vermont leave the U.S. because the U.S. was doing things that he thought were just too terrible. And he said, we do not want to be a part of these wars that the administration has started. Uh, and so we don't want to leave our home, so we need to leave the U.S. And there were other people playing other characters uh, in this event, which 
spent an entire day uh, public gathering in the uh, Capitol building. Uh, so yeah, Vermont Vermont has a streak of independence that's very strong. Well, good for you guys. And Vermont Actually, is expressed also in our politics, where we have a socialist representing us as one of our two senators and a Republican governor who was really on board with health regulations related to the pandemic uh, and did an amazing job. So people don't judge people on the basis of party. They judge them on the basis of their integrity. Now, that's that's super nice. I think a 10% nicer United States needs to have that, especially at a time when we were moving on both sides, not so much in that direction. Okay, not to get political. So we'll just jump into Population Media Center, which you founded over 20 years ago, right? Yes, in 1998. 1998, you founded Population Media Center. Where were you in 1998? What led you to founding, uh, let's go with acronyms because people love them, PMC. And what's PMC focused on right now? I was in this house and sat in our living room and came up with the name Population Media Center. Uh, And the reason I came up with that name is it's evident to me, having spent 50 years of my career in addressing unsustainable population growth and related sustainability issues like climate change and loss of biodiversity, that we really need to engage the media and particularly entertainment media in addressing social norms with regard to family size, family planning, girls' education, stopping child marriage, and a whole array of other issues that cannot be done just by opening clinics. It has to be done through communications. And so I set up the organization to use the power of mass media in reaching large audiences worldwide in order to model behaviors that would lead to both better health, better economic welfare, and sustainability across a whole array of issues. How, how does one start that? Where does it just, is it part, did you partner with the university? Did you call some friends that had similar interests? Where do you start such a huge project? I sent a check for $20 to the Vermont Secretary of State and registered the name and then applied for a 501c3 status with the IRS and uh, went through a whole process of getting uh, designated as a public charity. And I spent most of that year of 1998 talking to people who were capable of making significant donations about why I was doing this and by the end of the year, we were off and running. And I, the following year, traveled to seven countries in Africa to explore setting up programs for PMC. Wow. That is, that's a pretty quick start. That, I, I, you know what? I want to back up real quick just to give people a little perspective for this conversation uh, and why it's so vital, why we're talking about population and jump in, you know, if, if my numbers are off or whatever, but just this is the general idea, folks, is that backing way up a couple million years, um, or more. It took 2 million years of human prehistory and history for world human population to hit a billion, 1 billion humans. And that's a lot. But then it only took 200 more years to reach, we're almost at 8 billion now. So just think about that. 2 million years to get to a billion, all right? 200 years to reach 8 billion. If you're going to hockey stick that, you can't. It's basically a straight up line. That's correct. We've grown by 1 billion in the last 
10 years. So now think about that. 2 million years, 10 years. It, it, the mind can't even really compare those scales. It, For most it's minds hard can't. to comprehend yeah. what those numbers mean. The way I comprehend it is to say that tonight at the dinner table, there will be mm -hmm. 225,000 additional people than there were at the dinner table last night. And tomorrow, another 225,000. So we're talking about a medium-sized town uh, by Vermont standards, much bigger than, than any town we have in this state. In fact, it's a third of the Vermont population every day added to the world's population. And all of those people have a carbon footprint. All of those people need food, water, and uh, other resources in order to survive. A quarter million people every day. And that takes into account deaths, right? Is that That's the increase? Correct. That's net right. growth. Net growth of a quarter million people. Whatever town you're living in, right, when you're listening to this, many of you live in towns that are much smaller than that. Uh, and even if you live in a big one, a quarter million people is far more than any one city can handle uh, an influx of in uh in 24 hours. That's just staggering. So when you founded PMC, these numbers were already mind-blowing. Uh, and this is what you said, the late 80s. So at that point, the the doubling population growth in Africa was, I'm guessing, like 14 years or something like that. It was a very Not short- Not that fast, but in yeah. the 20s. So 20, in the 20s? depending on the country, 20 to, to 29 years. So you have nations doubling in size every couple of decades. Yeah. Okay. And now it's been 21 years. Um, you've been in, you're in more than 50 countries now around yeah. the well, world. We, we've operated in 53 so far. We're not on the air in all of those currently. Some we've mm -hmm. done a project and stopped and some we do on and off. So it's not all at once, but we have worked in 53 countries so far. And what does that look like to work in these countries? When you say you're on the air, what is the media that you're creating? How does that whole process work to affect? Well, I mean, you do more than affect. You're not just affecting population change. You're educating women. You're looking at, like you said, social environmental justice issues with the focus on gender equality. Um, so how do you get that across with what, radio and television? Is that basically what we're talking about here? Primarily, and of course, mm -hmm. there's now social media too. But yeah, we're in our radio and or television programs, we've reached a total of 530 million people so far in those countries. So wow. huge, huge audience, but still a fraction of the 8 billion of us on the planet. Uh, so we really have an aspiration to grow and have a much bigger impact on a global scale. But but uh, we're doing primetime radio or television, depending on what is the uh, most popular medium in each country, serialized dramas. And the mm -hmm. reason for doing serialized dramas is a couple of things. One is there's a whole body of research by a brain scientist named Paul McLean who found that behavioral decisions, however we much, much think we are rational beings, Behavioral decisions are made in the parts of the brain that deal primarily with emotion. And of course, that's very true when it comes to romance and a life partner and reproductive decisions, but it's true of everything, including buying a car, et cetera, et cetera. So if you think that you can just tell somebody, well, you should get vaccinated because that'll protect you from COVID, you're wrong. There's a long history of failure in public health 
of the idea that giving people information is sufficient to change behavior. What changes behavior is emotion-based motivation. And so role modeling is critically important. And role modeling by characters that people identify with is far more motivational to audiences than any expert, be it Dr. Fauci or me, not talking about my area of expertise, telling people what they should do. And in fact, people don't like to be lectured to. So these serialized dramas allow for time over months and years with an audience that is not going to change overnight. You know, if, if I say, gee, sorry to hear you have a headache, you should try drinking some water. And if that doesn't work, have an aspirin. That's about a 10 second public service announcement. And that may change your behavior. But say you're a farmer in rural Ethiopia and you have a daughter that, as far as you're concerned, is a liability and you have spent money to raise her to age 14. Now you're ready to sell her into marriage and pay off some of your debts. And somebody says, oh, you shouldn't do that. You should allow her to go to school and pay the school fees and then let her choose her own spouse when she's an adult. Well, that's not likely to work. In fact, People who have tried that on the radio find the radio gets switched off. So we do long-running serialized dramas where we can engage an audience, have them fall in love with key characters who get conflicting advice representative of the debate in that society from positive and negative characters, and over time trying some of the strategies each of them suggests and realizing positive or negative consequences, they gradually evolve into positive role models, and they show the audience the benefits of the new behaviors and how to push back or how to deal with the pushback that comes from those who are surprised that, oh, you're sending your daughter to school now. Why would you do such a thing like that? So it's, it's a very useful strategy for addressing ingrained behaviors. Uh, it makes so much sense. So, you know, obviously... Taking what you said, the farmer's daughter, the farmer sees on his favorite TV show that falls in love with this daughter character and the relationship she has with her father. And oh, I wish that our relationship was like that. Sees the daughter be conflicted about whether she should be, you know, whether she's going to be sold. She wins her father's approval to marry, raises a family. She becomes successful and lends some of her success to the father who is now seen as a a champion and a hero in his own community. And then the father doesn't have to answer so much to people asking in real life, why did you allow your daughter to go off? Because they all love the show. His community, this is a popular show, right? I mean, when we're talking about shows that are, you're in areas where you're not, are you competing? Let me ask you, are you competing with, you know, Disney, Fox, et cetera, in these areas? It depends on the media market. No, we're not competing with Disney and Fox. In Ethiopia, 6% of the population have television. Radio Ethiopia is really the only game in town. But there are private FMs, uh, so there Mm -hmm. is a little bit of competition. But on Radio Ethiopia, we're reaching half the population of the country as regular listeners. And I can tell you a story. We have on videotape a man in a small village in a rural area of Ethiopia saying, he regretted having sent or having forced all of his previous daughters into marriage before he heard our show, Yekin Kignet. And that show had modeled a woman becoming a professional, and he allowed 
his daughter to go to computer school. And now she is working in the computer industry and supporting the rest of the family. And he said, I wish I had heard this show before I had forced all my other daughters into marriages. Mm, that's big. I mean, it's, it's has to make you sad, but also it's evidence that you're making changes. Yeah. Right. And while we're on Ethiopia, we've gotten 40,000 letters, not to mention text messages and emails from our listeners. These are posted letters uh, with a postage stamp that cost the equivalent of two eggs. And in a country that's food insecure, that's a real commitment by listeners telling us mm -hmm. what they think about the program. And one of those letters from a woman in Oromia, Ethiopia said, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. Our own daughter was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result, because when, once a girl's been raped, she's often forced into marriage to save the family's reputation. So she said, we've been afraid to send the 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wu Balam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together and we agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we had not realized existed. And now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. Please keep your program on the air. Now, who's doing the writing of your programs? Local partners? How do you find those people? We set up local offices of PMC in each country. There are a few cases where we have partnered with an existing organization in a country because they had what we needed. But in most cases, we set up PMC Ethiopia, PMC Zambia, PMC Nepal, PMC Mexico. And we look at who is writing entertainment and particularly uh, serialized dramas, or if not stage plays, uh, mm -hmm. or even books that are well done. And we uh, recruit the best writers in the country we train them in how to do effective uh, storytelling via long-running serialized dramas. We create a team of writers. No one person should attempt to write a 200-episode program. And after they're trained, we work closely with that team, but they know their culture. Uh, we provide them with a lot of information from our formative research in their country, uh, about the cultural realities and the language people use to describe the issues that we're addressing. Um, and we give them a policy framework that's part of our formative research that lets them know what the country's policies are on each issue that's going to be addressed. So the values of the program can be based on the country's policies. And then they write the script in their local language. That sounds like an awful lot of power to me. For example, in Ethiopia, you have half the population listening to your radio show. Does that ever threaten people, um, local politicians or folks who are on the other side of the issue, folks who would prefer to see the old system that, that degrades women in place? What kind of pushback do you ever get, if any? We don't get much, uh, in part because we're not telling people what to do. They're listening to an exciting serial and being mm -hmm. entertained. And yes, they're aware they're learning things, but they're not being told what to do. Um, and they also know that this 
program is in line with the country's policies. And as with the case of marriage by abduction, we're actually informing them what the laws and policies of the country say so they know their rights. Uh, but there are some, for example, in northern Nigeria, uh, there was a mullah who spoke out against our program. And we went to the top guy in that region, in that religion, and explained the official finding from Al-Aram University that goes as follows, that while the Quran was written 700 years ago, it doesn't say anything about family planning, but it does command a woman to breastfeed her infant for at least two years. And because of pregnancy in a food insecure society can lead to the end of breastfeeding, uh, mm. the Quran inherently endorses family planning. And since that's an official thing <laughs> within the world of Islam, we inform the leaders of their own policy and they went, okay, that's good. That's cool. So in fact, we have had no controversy publicly about these programs. That's, that's amazing. I love that story. Just, the, you know, using the book, yeah, it's it's hard to argue with it, right? You know, well, it is. I mean, who am I to argue tell people how to live yeah. their lives? I, you know, I right. I have my view, but when they have official policies, as long as those policies are in line with human rights accords and mm -hmm. UN agreements, then we will use their policies as the basis for the values in the program. If their policies violate human rights, then we won't touch those in our programs. Now, when you see, let's say, U.S. programming, just, you know, major U.S. programming, hit shows, do you ever look at it with any sort of consternation and think, ah, these are kind of like opposing role models? You know, I can't time. believe that these are the role models and that people don't understand that what they watch shapes their children massively. Can you think of any examples that really frustrate the, the gang at PMC? Absolutely. So... This is going to date, my, date me, but the original version of Dallas had uh, mm -hmm. content that was intentionally anti-abortion. If you've ever seen an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, you know that very big guns are the solution to everything. And in fact, there are hundreds of studies by psychologists showing that consumption of violent programming encourages violence, not among all of us. So if you have good, positive, offsetting parental role models, you can go and watch The Godfather and not turn into a serial killer. But people who lack such role models, particularly children who are neglected and grow up consuming violent programming, tend to be much more violent and or accepting of violence. And so it's clear that negative programming does have negative effects in the same way that having every character smoking encourages viewers to smoke. And in, it was the case for many years that the tobacco industry was pouring money into Hollywood in order to get that subtle message across. Now, does the flip side ring true? That is, how do I, how do I put this? Um, if someone... <laughs> values, good, evil, morality. These are all such squishy terms to me. They're hard, you know, they're all just human concepts. They don't exist necessarily. Um, if someone is raised in a home that has, um, you know, negative values, right? The parents are perpetuating violence, et cetera. 
Is there space for positive role modeling to change the kids in that home? Um, It's very true that people can change. So it takes a while. But when you're talking about positive and negative, when people are selling their daughters into marriage at 14 or 15 years old, when women are having a baby every year and uh, suffering tremendous health consequences and their children may be starving, it's pretty clear from UN agreements, not to mention public health, that these are negative behaviors. And in fact, we are able to model an alternative and over time change norms. So in fact, let me give you one example from Senegal. We dealt with child marriage there. And at the end of the program, we did an inline survey, a random sample of the population among listeners and non-listeners. And listeners, well, obviously listeners may be demographically different in some way, income, education, place of residence, than a non-listener. So we ran multivariate controls to factor out all of those variables out that might have influenced the outcome. And after running all those controls, our listeners were six times as likely as a non-listener to believe that a woman should be at least 19 years old before she marries. Six times. That's huge. Wow. In Sierra Leone, while malaria prevention was not a major theme, Mm -hmm. um, our listeners were five times as likely as non-listeners to have acquired a bed net during the two years of the broadcast. And that's after running those controls. Uh, But the major impact we had in Sierra Leone was on family planning use because we had modeled that in the program. And with half the population listening, it had a measurable impact uh, at clinics that asked new clients why they had come. 50% of them answered with the word Sally Wansai, the name of our program. That's incredible. That's incredible. How great is it? You work at a nonprofit and we've had a, a number of nonprofit uh, founders and um, employees on the show. But oftentimes when you work in the nonprofit world, you don't get a lot of positive feedback. You know, it's a grind and people burn out because you just can't tell, well, the world's still heating up. Obviously our work isn't working, you know, but what you're doing, you really see or hear that you're changing individual lives. You know, whether or not you're slowing down the greater population situation, hard to tell, right? What if, you know, a, uh, not one of the space billionaires because they don't seem to really be too concerned uh, with the future of humanity other than escaping Earth. But maybe I got it. Uh, Mackenzie Scott, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, you know, the smart one. What if she bequeathed, you know, a couple of billion dollars to PMC? What would happen? What is, what is, how do you scale? It would make such a dramatic difference to the future of the planet. Um, And I'll back up a little bit. You know, I'm trained as a scientist. And so one of the reasons we're doing these kinds of measures that I've talked about is we want to know if we're having an impact because our goal is to create a sustainable planet with equal rights for all. And right now, the demographic and health surveys, which have been carried out in about 95 countries, and we've looked at the data from all 95, show that the top reason for non-use of contraception is wanting bigger families. And in West Africa in particular, desired fertility 
is higher than actual fertility. So in wow. Nigeria, the average woman is having 5.7 children during her reproductive years. And when women are asked how many they think would be ideal, they say seven. And men who have more influence in most families say nine. In Niger, fertility rate is 7.6 children per woman. Women say they want 10. Men want 13. So 13. building clinics will not affect that. Changing norms with regard to family size, child spacing, waiting until adulthood to start childbearing, etc., is far more important. Second most common reason for non-use of contraception, and this is among those who don't want an immediate pregnancy, is they've heard it's dangerous, or their husband's opposed, or they think their religion is opposed, or they're fatalistic and think that the number of children I have is up to God. So right. those cultural or informational factors are far more important than lack of access as a reason for non-use. Lack of access is only cited by 1% or less in most countries. So it's not a dominant reason. These programs can address these reasons by helping people in the societal debate understand that in fact the view that a contraceptive will give you cancer or will make you infertile is incorrect and that in fact uh, it's far safer than early and repeated childbearing. You know, having using a contraceptive is far safer than having 10 children. So we can we can model that. We can model the benefit of having a couple of children rather than six. Uh, in terms of child health, in terms of economic welfare. And let me pause on that for a minute. Economic welfare is linked to family size. It's pretty evident. You know, large families often live in poverty, and countries with large family size are often mired in poverty. Um, and there is this belief that, well, if I have 15 children, maybe one of them will turn out to be Bill Gates. But in fact, Having two children that are educated and employed is a far better strategy than having 10 or 15 children who are starving. So mm -hmm. getting that across can be done in a reasonable period of time. Simultaneously, one can get across environmental behaviors, such as reducing one's carbon footprint, such as not cutting down the forest to expand your farm, but allowing wilderness to exist so we don't destroy the biodiversity on the planet that makes the planet habitable. And all of that can be done with a couple of billion dollars. In fact, we could be working in most of the countries of the world all at once, dramatically affecting norms. And yes, you did say, and it's true that with our work, we can't point to all the de declines in uh, fertility rates around the world and say, yes, we did that. But we can in some countries. So, for example, in our first two years in Ethiopia, contraceptive use went up 133%. And huge numbers of the people coming to clinics named our program as the reason. And fertility rate fell by a full child in two years. Wow. So we're able to see changes at the country level. But we want to work in 50 or more countries at once. And so if Mackenzie Scott wanted to make that possible, we could do a lot, including working in the U.S. to model 
climate-friendlier behavior by American consumers. Mackenzie, uh, you're listening. So I would recommend just reaching out to Bill, having a conversation. I'm sure you could start a program in your name, something to, you know, statues, something to make it worth your while. Uh, give Bill a call. His phone number is on the website, yes. um, Population Media Center. And if you call that, you'll get his mobile number. Just give him a holler. I mean, why wait till the end of this episode? Just do it now, Mackenzie. We all are so proud of how you've broken off from your ex-husband and the great work that you're doing. So just I think this is a great way to keep that momentum going by by helping the Population Media Center. Uh, I'm so glad that, that you're a listener, by the way, and remember the Super Nice Club, Mackenzie. Uh, I'm still kind of staggered at these numbers that you mentioned earlier. Uh, desired 13 children. That's, uh, I mean, I in Niger, you say, I, clearly there must be a lot of Mormons and Catholics in, it, in that country. Actually, tra- <laughs> tradition, if you go to a wedding in Madagascar, the the toast at the wedding dinner is, may you have seven sons and seven daughters. Now, why is large family size, particularly in Africa, so popular? Well, up until World War II, for all of human history, those hundreds of thousands of years uh, that humans were on the planet, most children died on the way to adulthood. And so if you had... 14 children, you might have to survive. Uh, and in fact, that's why the population wasn't growing because children died in infancy. They died of malaria uh, all the way through life. And so in fact, there was high birth rate uh, that was necessary to offset the high death rate with a number of public health measures, including pasteurizing milk and uh, vaccine programs that came in around World War II and other public health measures, those infant and child death rates dropped dramatically. And now in every country, 90 plus percent uh, of children survive to adulthood. But in fact, because of most of human history, thinking people thinking that their children are gonna be dying, they still think it's a good idea to have large families and they don't know that Child survival is much, much higher now than it ever has been before. And so that's another thing we can get across to people. Um, What are some of the biggest criticisms of your work that are levied at you? Because when we talk about population, it is still uh, triggering for some folks. Of course. Um, I was in Romania during the time of Ceausescu. I stood about 15 feet from him during the first World Population Conference when he promised to support the UN's call for family planning availability. And then immediately after the conference, banned family planning and led to the orphanages being filled with unwanted children in Romania. So coercion has occurred on both sides of the population issue. That one is not alone. I mean, certainly the in the Philippines, the bishops of the Philippines got the mayor of Manila to ban the sale of contraceptives, leading to catastrophe for women having baby after baby. But indeed, there have been coercive measures used in China and India and Vietnam, where child child family size policies have been put in place that were coercive. So in fact, China 
could have done this without any coercion. They mobilized a million people to go around door to door across the country and persuade people of the benefits of small family norms. But being China, they imposed a one-child policy in urban areas and larger family size policy in rural areas. But the one-child policy is well-remembered. It's been done away with. But in fact, I've traveled all over that country and everybody I've talked to has told me they were persuaded without having that coercive policy in place that it was beneficial for them economically to have only one child. And indeed, one of the reasons China's got one of the fastest growing economies on the planet is the small family size. So just to back up on economic welfare, uh, the demographers use a term demographic dividend. And when you look at all the Asian tigers, or more broadly, when you look at every country that's been reclassified from developing status to developed status since World War II, all of them started with family planning and smaller family norms. And that led, with no change in per capita income, that led to a little more money being left over at the end of the month. Instead of trying to feed, house, and clothe six children, they are now trying to do that for two. Mm. And so there was money left over. And in places like Japan and South Korea and Thailand, they put that money in the bank. That grew the capital marketplace. That allowed businesses to borrow and expand. That drove up employment. That drove up wages at a time when the number of people entering the labor force was starting to level off and decline. And that created a middle class. At the same time, some of that extra money could be spent on education, which increased economic productivity. The rising incomes could be taxed and used to build infrastructure, roads, schools, municipal services of all kinds, and that increased economic productivity. And so this term, the demographic dividend, captures what happens in a country when fertility rates fall. And that's why it's so important in Africa, because they are in many countries still mired in poverty uh, caused by large family size. It sounds to me just like it's a, an issue of pragmatism. I was reading recently about the pragmatic approach being so much more effective than when you frame an issue um, as good, evil, moral, you know, as, as some sort of value, whether that issue is population or LGBTQ uh, rights or uh, race rights or gender issues. And they were using, as an example, China. They were using, as an, uh, in China, the, um, you know, in the United States, let me back it up, in the U.S., we've been fighting for maybe the last 10 years to really increase the public adoption of gender-neutral restrooms, and in schools, et cetera, it's been a fight, mm. right? Not making West on the coasts. Yes. Rest of the country, not so much. Guess what country is leading that charge? It's China. You know why? Because they're not framing it in any sort of emotion laden verbiage. They're just saying it's pragmatic. Yeah. They're less expensive when you do it that way. Uh, it's much more, they just lay it out that way. And they don't coerce anyone. It's not a law, anything like that. But restaurants, everywhere, businesses, the explosion of gender-neutral restrooms is in China because they just simply show people why it makes sense This is the, issue, uh, the, the population issue. And for that matter, much of uh, the whole set of issues surrounding the issue of sustainability can best be dealt with via 
voluntary activity as opposed to coercion. I mean, coercion mm-hmm. backfired in India badly. Uh, Indira Gandhi, who imposed coercion, lost the, ne- the next election. And the family planning program of India has never recovered from the setback that came about because of coercion. So our view is, if you want to achieve a sustainable planet, you're not going to do it by telling people what to do or forcing them what to do. You're going to do it by making them understand the benefits to themselves of new behavior. And if you can find a way to wrap it in an emotional motivator, you'll have even more success than if you just give people information. So if Gloria Steinem or Jane Fonda were to call me and invite me to go to the gym, it would have more effect on my behavior than my cardiologist telling me to go to the gym. (laughs) Speaking of strong, powerful women, um, you do a lot of work around violence against and education of women and the work of PMC. Is it fair to say that the end of the day, women benefit the most from your work and that being the case, that is how the world benefits the most. Yes, and, and, and their children benefit when their mothers benefit. So, of course, violence against women in its many forms, from child marriage to female genital mutilation to plain old domestic violence, are human rights violations, but they also make it difficult for the woman to achieve what she may want to achieve, let alone to use family planning if she wants to space or limit childbearing if her husband doesn't agree. So addressing the concept of domination, that men own the women, that we own the planet, we have the right to destroy the planet in order to take all of its resources. All of these domination theories have to be addressed in our programs in order to change behavior of men. And create a new mass, a new paradigm for masculinity among men. What kind of successes have you had in that arena? Um, I'll just give you one. In okay. Ethiopia, when we started, FGM was a rite of passage, female genital mutilation. This leads to uh, death, in some cases, pain, painful sexual intercourse for the rest of their lives, infection, higher risk of HIV infection, et cetera. So it's a, it's a terrible violation of human rights. And we've been in many of our programs, we've done nine serial dramas on Radio Ethiopia, plus various talk shows and other programs. We have seen this practice go from something that was openly celebrated to rapidly disappearing and when practiced only done in secret. Um, And we've in part mobilized Orthodox Christian leaders and Islamic leaders across the country to understand that there's nothing in any of their holy books that endorses this practice and to campaign nationwide among their followers to stop the practice. So we've seen a dramatic change and adoption of new rites of passage as opposed to this terribly uh, cruel uh, uh, practice. We have, in the U.S., done one program on television. I didn't expect to be able to do a program on television in the U.S. because Hollywood is so fragmented and so competitive. But uh, we had a donor who said, here's a few million dollars. Go 
do a program to address teen pregnancy in the U.S. And so I went out and met with Nellie Galland, who had been running Telemundo, and explained that the highest rates of teen pregnancy are among Latinas, and that uh, I wanted to do a youth-oriented telenovela to address this issue. And she put me in touch with a UCLA film school grad named Carlos Portugal, who over lunch I hired as director and head writer of the show to be, our first show in Hollywood. And he then engaged a team of writers and we trained them in the methodology we use. And then they created and produced 24 episodes and knowing what I'd been told by everybody I'd met in LA that I didn't know what I was doing and I would never ever get an episode on the air. I told him I was prepared to put it on our website. Uh, and he said, well, now that we've got them all produced, let me put it out for network inspection. It was so well done. Eight networks wanted it. We chose Hulu. It became the longest running program in their history. It is still generating revenue for us. What's the show called? East Los High. As in East Los Angeles, it was a fictional high school we created called East Los High. And this it's one of the settings uh, about the teen life in East LA that this show is all about. And it focuses on the lives of the girls in the dance troupe at East Los High and their competitions against other dance troupes and their love lives and a lot of other things going on. And it was for five years, the number one show among Latino viewers in the US and Wow, I should say uh, of Hulu Latino viewers and season two, when it dealt with domestic violence, it was the number one show on Hulu among all audiences. Mm. Wow. Way to go. That's amazing. So that was our first foray into Hollywood. And it shows that a program that models positive behavior can indeed compete from a rating standpoint, I mean, part of our message to Hollywood is you don't have to use gratuitous sex and violence to sell your shows. You can, in fact, have some positive content. Um, and now we have a team in L.A., and we've developed about a dozen projects that we're working to get picked up and produced and broadcast. Oh, that's fantastic. Makes me feel a little bit guilty for being such a big Rick and Morty fan. I've got to be honest, but, uh, you know, I'm an adult. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> as impressionable anymore, right? Tell me, backing up, what originally got you interested in population issues? Do you remember maybe at some point, like reading something, there was a book or a eureka moment where you decided, this is my work? I remember the day, clearly. It set the course for the rest of my life. I, was a, I had done undergraduate work in biology, and I was now a graduate student at Yale University in biology, thinking I was going to go into teaching biology at the college level. And my advisor, a guy named Charles Remington, who was an evolutionary biologist and renowned ecologist, was part of a team of faculty in the biology department in the forestry school, inviting in speakers, mostly ecologists, to talk about the world's environmental crisis. This was 1968. And we had all kinds of renowned ecologists come through and talk about pollution, toxification of the environment, loss of biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. And a lepidopterist, that is butterfly and moth expert, from Stanford University, whom Charles Remington knew, 
because they both did their summer research at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab, named Paul Ehrlich, happened to publish a book called The Population Bomb. So he was invited to give a lecture at Yale, and I read the book and attended his lecture uh, at the forestry school, and then had dinner with him and Charles Remington at Remington's house that night. That weekend, the two of them and an attorney founded the organization Zero Population Growth. The following year, in 1969, I started the fourth chapter in the country, the Yale student chapter, and we planned the Yale campus activities for the first Earth Day in 1970 and were featured in Life Magazine's Earth Day issue. At that point, I realized that environmental sustainability was far more important than insect feeding behavior and plant defense mechanisms, which was what my research was on. And I decided to go to work for the Population Institute in Washington. And I spent the decade of the 70s there. I was running the youth and student division back when I qualified to do that. And uh, another person was running their communications division. And he had been working with Mary Tyler Moore and Norman Lear on the content of their shows. So, for example, he suggested... Uh, meathead's vasectomy on all, all in the family. He got Mary Tyler Moore doing her banter about sexism in the workplace on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then he discovered a telenovela producer in Mexico doing a telenovela in 1976-77 modeling family planning use. Contraception had been legalized three years earlier, and he had 29% of the nation's viewers watching his show As Marta and Jesus struggled to keep their marriage together, one of the issues over which they were disagreeing was how many children to have. And ultimately, Marta prevailed. She got her husband to go to a clinic after trying uh, periodic abstinence, during which he walked out on her. And Mm. um, they got to a clinic and on nationwide television heard about all the methods of family planning and adopted an IUD. And there was an immediate 33% increase in clinic attendance, a 23% increase increase in contraceptive purchases in pharmacies. Sabido had also role modeled advocacy by having characters who were users of family planning trying to persuade those who were not to adopt family planning. And he ran the equivalent of an 800 number people could called to sign up as volunteer promoters of family planning, and 3,000 people called that number. So um, we took a look at that data and said, he's on to something. My colleague, David Poindexter, got him to do four more telenovelas addressing related topics like teen pregnancy. And by the time all five had run, Mexico had achieved the most dramatic decline in fertility rate of any developing country in the 20th century up until that time. And so I said, okay, that sounds good. Uh, Then I went to work for a couple of Planned Parenthood affiliates and then got back into international communications with this colleague and set up a controlled field experiment in Tanzania using treatment and control areas where the treatment got the soap opera and the control got music. And the differences were so dramatic, we then ran the program in the control area and got the same results. So dramatic increase in contraceptive use, dramatic uh, change in behavior to avoid HIV infection, only where the program was broadcast. So 
And in fact, our cost of that 208-episode program, writing, acting, production, and primetime air distribution, divided by the number of people who adopted family planning and attributed that decision to the program, as 49% of new users did in the broadcast areas, uh, came out to 32 cents per new adopter. And the cost Mm. per person who changed behavior to avoid HIV infection came out to 8 cents. At that point, I said, if this is by far the least expensive, most cost-effective way to achieve public health, uh, and that's what I'm doing for the rest of my career, and that's when I set up Population Media Center. That is, that's a great overview, and I've got something for you, a little something special. Come in, buddy. Over here, Ray. Come here, bud, and shut the door behind you. All right. So, um, listeners, little story, little backstory. Once upon a time, Bill and I worked at Post Carbon Institute, which is a nonprofit. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, we've had the senior fellow Richard Heinberg on to discuss resource scarcity issues, as well as the executive director, Sharon Miller, to sort of talk about, well, everything the Post Carbon Institute does. Bill, as one of the fellows, sort of integrated where population issues intersect with resource scarcity, and then all of our other fellows, one would be on water, topsoil, social equity, et cetera, et cetera. So coming into contact with Bill, you know, I really kind of got to know that, yeah, responsible family planning, you know, two kids, right? You have a couple kids, you're good to go. Um, I had three. So my third son, with this wave of guilt overcame me. I felt like the worst, you know, and I can't believe how irresponsible I'm being. So I named him Ryerson. <laughs> Rye. And Rye has never met his namesake. And oh, hello. Rye is the man after whom you were named. Right oh. there. That's Bill Ryerson. Nice. Rye, very nice to meet you. I've been hearing about you and seeing your photos over the years. So nice Here. to see you. Face to stand up here. So, what do you have to say to this guy? Do you like your name? Yeah. Yeah. You proud of it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think he deserves like a thanks for having such a cool name? Yes. What do you think the name's all about, Ryer's son? Because like, if you're, was he was he the son of a Ryer? No. No. I don't it think actually so. is an anglicized version of a Dutch name, Ryer Z, or Ryers. Uh, Martin Ryerson, uh, back when it was more a Dutch name like Ryers or Ryerzee, uh, and his brother sailed to New Amsterdam, now known as New York City, in about 1640. And he farmed the southern part of Manhattan Island and uh, married a young woman who was the first European baby born in the colony of New York. And mm-hmm. they had 11 children. And all the oh, the story's great. All the Ryersons of North America are descended from Martin. Um, wow. So it's a very interesting family. And in fact, if have you seen the movie Titanic? No. Okay. Well, when you see that movie, it's a pretty good movie. Uh, Leonard, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, plays a guy who's in third class passage, and he falls in love with a woman in first class who's engaged to some guy who's kind of a cad. And he actually borrows somebody's coat to get into first class. And when he's 
confronted talking to the fiance by her husband-to-be, he pulls back the coat that DiCaprio is wearing and says, you stole this coat from Mr. Ryerson to get into first class. So when I saw the movie, I went home and got out the genealogy and looked up deaths in 1912, and there is Arthur Ryerson, who uh, took his family, uh, his wife, two daughters, a son, 10-year-old boy, a governess, and a maid on a vacation in Europe. They got a telegram that their older son had been killed in an automobile accident in Philadelphia, so they caught the first ship home, and that ship happened to be the Titanic. And after it hit an iceberg, it went down to the bottom of the ocean, and uh, Arthur Ryerson went down with it, but the rest of the family was put on a lifeboat and came back and survived. So that night I called my cousin, Peter Ryerson, who's interested in genealogy, and I said, Peter, do you know we had a distant relative on the Titanic? And he said, yes, I know that, and let me tell you the rest of the story. So Peter was doing software sales for hospital management software, and he had just had a meeting with a hospital manager. And the, the man uh, started the conversation by bringing up the movie, and he said to Peter, I know you had a relative on the Titanic, and I know he went down with the ship, and I know the rest of the family was offloaded onto lifeboat number 13. And Peter said, I knew all of that except the number of the lifeboat. How the heck did you know that? And this man said, I inherited a blanket from my grandmother that's inscribed Titanic lifeboat number 13. She was the Ryerson's governess. Wow. Wow. And that is the rest of the story, Ryerson. That's cool. Isn't it? Started out a little grim, you know, but ended up kind of cool. Yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, I just wanted I just wanted you to say hi. Very nice Bill. to meet you. Hi, Bill. I hope All right, we see so, each other again. Sometime when I get no, out to the West Coast, I'll come visit in person. No more than two kids, right, right? Um, yeah. Okay, you, you're making that vow right now? I mean, they you're nine. You should be start thinking about how many kids you're going to have. Um. Yeah, how many do you want to have? One. Great answer. Okay, fantastic. That's a great answer. We, <laughs> we do need to shrink the population. Population growth is responsible for about 25% of climate change. So most of it's happening in countries with low per capita emissions, but there's so many new capitas that it's a significant increase or com, uh, contribution to uh, greenhouse gases. And population growth is the number one reason for loss of wilderness and therefore loss of biodiversity that makes the planet habitable. So shrinking the population is a very good idea. So having one child is perfect. Say thanks for all that uplifting info, Bill. Thanks for all the uplifting info, Bill. <laughs> um, and you can go back in and play with your brother. Okay. Thanks for being out here, buddy. Okay. Bye. 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 <laughs> Well, that was great fun. Yeah, he's he's awesome. Um, we went to the Natural History Museum yesterday here in LA. No, I was just saying, I was just waving by, and got to look at sort of the the human population, the the early you know Lucy skeletal stuff, and we kind of had to talk about um, that hockey stick, you know, that population growth. I you know not it's an interesting thing with kids. You want to be real with them, but you have to also try not to make them 
uh, fearful about the future. There's so much depression in young adults and young teens. Very true. And and as a parent, you're trying to figure out what do I, what is my responsibility for offering what I believe to be true, but also making sure that that they don't take it as gospel, mm-hmm. that they should always go and assess this for their themselves as well, without paralyzing them, without well, making them feel, you know. Yes. Things like inconvenient truth. When I saw that, it just made me depressed. And it didn't tell me what I could do to change the situation. It just says, here's, we're going to hell in a handbasket, and here's all the problems with climate change. So, okay, you got my attention, but now what? So, really, what I think is hopeful is that, in fact, there are a lot of people doing a lot of things towards solutions, and there are solutions. In fact, the one we're using is a relatively simple solution. It wouldn't even take $2 billion to achieve a dramatic change in population trajectories on a worldwide basis. And so the solutions are relatively simple. All they need is commitment of resources and, in some cases, uh, commitment of policy. But, but for the most part, we can achieve these solutions if we put our minds to it. And we should. So for people whose curiosity has been piqued by this conversation, you know, where can they learn more? Are there any great books or films that you recommend as exciting things that they can jump into and, and share with friends and family? There are many. Of course, populationmedia.org, our website, is full of these. There are a number of films. The film Mother, Caring for Seven Billion, about 25% of it features our work in Ethiopia, which was produced by Tarar A. Films, uh, is a really great explanation of the population situation, and about a quarter of it addresses our work in Ethiopia. And it shows that man I mentioned who was regretting having married his, his daughters off uh, and now had a daughter who, because she had gotten educated, was supporting the rest of the family. Okay, we'll put a link to that, folks, uh, so you don't have to try to write it down while you're driving or whatever you're doing. It'll be in the show notes along with a link to to Bill's site. Do you have a challenge for the listeners of this, a super nice challenge, something that they can do to sort of make the world a little nicer, a little better, some sort of small action? Certainly, when they're writing their contributions to charities, um, they should support organizations like Population Media Center that are working to achieve a sustainable planet. There are lots of environmental organizations, and I'm guessing your listeners are well aware of them. They may not be aware of ours. And so supporting it as well as introducing friends to it is something that I think is a very simple thing people can do that can make a huge difference in the future of the planet. I agree. Spreading the word. Not everybody can always financially support organizations in every moment, or they're already dedicated to supporting a bunch on a monthly basis. And But uh, if you can't, that's understandable. What you can do, though, that's just as valuable is spreading the word of the organization. Say, hey, folks, I support this organization. I would love it if you did too. And with social media, that's super easy, right? But also just in conversation. So I'm going to reframe Bill's challenge uh, to be a little more self-centered, which is check out Population Media Center. And if you're buying what they're selling, spread the word. Also, people can make decisions about family size that take the planet into account. So uh, as we just discussed, more and more people are deciding to have one child or no children 
uh, in order to help the future of the planet. And that's a huge contribution. And, and I'll back that up with statistics. Two statisticians at uh, Oregon State University calculated that for an American couple, having one less child is a contribution to the health of the planet 5.7 times greater than all the technological fixes like uh, putting in new windows and uh, putting in solar panels that one can make. So I've blown past that, folks, with with the, the son that you just met, Ryerson. So if somebody out there can maybe, you know, volunteer to have one less to offset me, let me know. I'll send you a super nice club hat, a shirt maybe. Uh, you know, call it square because the guilt is a daily thing. It racks me. I, I can't but look at my third child with anything less than some sort of just almost disdain. It's terrible. Get, kidding. Get of over course. It I'm kidding. The issue, <laughs> the issue is not one large family. The issue is average and what we need is Understood. average down. Understood. Okay. So lastly, Bill, real fast, because um, I know you you know, I've, I've kept you too long already. Do you have a question for me? You get to ask any question you want. I'll do my best to answer it. And then uh, we get to go home. All right. I'm interested to know about your audience, who they are, how many there are, uh, what, what their demographics are. Demographics are largely U.S., uh, Quite a bit of Canada, actually. You know, they say nice a lot in Canada. And then you're, you're obvious. Uh, after after that, it's uh, the UK, the Scandinavian countries. We do have a the fifth largest country of, of our social media is Uganda, actually, because we are working with William Butala. William, what's up? Uh, who is in the Naka Valley Refugee Center there. Uh, Cassandra Puga, who's uh, uh, working with William and others. And we have a super nice uh, football team there, soccer. Uh, we have uh, some things and some things that are going to be getting off the ground there with education and ways that our members can basically sponsor some of these kids over there to get educated. Well, that's uh, you should listen to our programs. We have an English language program and a Luganda language program on the air in Uganda. Is it just on the air or is there a station or how does, how do I tell them how to find it? Uh, that's a comp it's complicated. It's on multiple state. Each program is on multiple stations at different time slots. So uh, he can go to our website and, and search for what station is close to him that he could pick up. Okay. I'll figure it out from there. Uh, in terms of the rest of your question, the uh, demographic, it's about 58, I think last time I checked, 58% women, 42% men. Slightly starting to trend a little bit younger, started out a little bit older, about 45-ish. You know, now we're starting to trend a little bit younger than that. I'm not sure why. I don't really try to push the direction of the message of nice. I'm not seeking a certain demographic. I think it just should be equally uh, applied to everybody. I kind of think that um, younger people are less jaded. They tend to just sort of be nicer naturally. They haven't had so many negative moments in their lives that shut them down. They haven't forgotten what it is to be young, to be youthful, you know, to feel like a five-year-old. You know, you, you still remember that when you're 20, yeah. right? When you're 50, maybe not so much. And a big population, surprisingly, in Boise, Idaho. Boise, shout out to Boise uh, and other cities in Idaho. Idaho must be the super nice estate. I'm sorry, Vermont, because I just don't see a ton of members of the super nice club there, probably because you don't like to be told to be nice, right? You uh, independent rascals. <laughs> uh, 
it's just, you know, we're just slowly growing. We're slowly growing the club. The podcast is also slowly growing. Um, we're uh, pushing into sort of that top 20% range of podcasts, which is nice. We've moved to bi-weekly instead of weekly recently, just because creating this much content, I just, there's too much for people to listen to. Yeah. There's just too much stuff out there right now. Uh, and we are going to be doing a bring the nice fall tour to the cities that have larger populations of super nice club members this fall. So if you can get something happening in Vermont in the next couple of months, you know, we'll come out and see you. Okay. We'll spread the word. Hey, really great talking to you, Bill. Again, Bill Ryerson, folks, founder of Population Media Center, doing some truly super nice work impacting lives on the individual level, but also on the community level and the larger human culture level. So I really highly recommend that you check out the work. And obviously, Bill doesn't work alone. He founded PMC, but there are a lot of people at PMC around the world doing real work and check out what they're all doing. Todd, thanks so much for having me on. Of course. I look forward to seeing you again in the real world. Okay, great. So there you have it, a super nice conversation with super nice William Ryerson. I really love that man. Uh, loved talking to him, loved listening to his successes because there's so many challenges ahead of us and not enough success stories out there. Not enough um, proof that if we just kind of plan for it and execute it, and execute it well, we can make huge changes. We can show people better ways. We don't have to scare them only. We don't have to just say, hey, the world's ending. Ah, although, I mean, it's kind of important to point out the fact that, you know, we're having problems, but we also need to show them by example, a better way to do it. And this is what, this is what Ryerson and his team are doing and they're doing it successfully. And guess what? All he needs is the ability to scale this up. All right, that's it. This is a plan that works. So let's help. Is there anything you can do to help? Help them out. Get this podcast to somebody who can help. Yeah, there's so many billionaires now. So many billionaires. You probably know one, right? Yeah. Okay, so next week's episode is, well, two weeks from now. I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, uh, as I record this right now in Los Angeles, California, I'm getting ready to travel to the Netherlands uh, and Serbia. I'm going to bring my little mobile podcast kit. And I want to try to find somebody there to talk to. So that's the plan. Who that person is, don't know. But uh, we'll find out together. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for just pushing for a nicer world. It does make a difference just to hold it in mind. And I know we can't keep it in mind all the time. We can't always be nicer, but especially if somebody isn't using their turn signals, right? I'm never going to be nice and patient about people who don't use their turn signals. It's just a weakness in me. I know. Uh, Tom Cruise was doing an audit of me a couple weeks ago as I was pushing to reach, you know, 8% uh, nicer. 8% uh, is such an expensive one too. It just costs a lot of money. Uh, and the fact that I'm having this hang up with turn signals, blinkers, uh, the entitlement of people on the road, especially here in LA, uh, it meant that in order to pass that audit, <laughs> I'll just be honest with you here. I had to spend an extra $13,000. Yeah, but I can proudly say now that I'm 8% nicer and uh, it's just something that I need to, that I've committed to working on. Um, paid penance. You know, uh, and it was uh, in Ethereum, had to cash out, kind of a low point. But 
that's 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 my burden to bear. Um, anyway, my humor isn't great. It entertains me as I stand here in the podcast recording room. I don't know that it makes anybody else laugh, but it makes me laugh. And I think that that's the lesson here, finally. Like, don't worry about it if other people don't think you're funny. If you're making jokes and it makes you chuckle, man, that's the essence of dad jokes. All right, I love you all, everybody. Stay nice. So what? Big deal.